If you haven't already, what I would uh, invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are completing verses 14 through 18. We started it last week, so it was part one last week. And I just didn't get that far in the text. There's quite a bit there to think about and think through, so I, I thought it was a little much to try to do in one message. If uh, you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 980. That'll bring you to where we are. I, th- I think I'll announce because I, I know quite a few of you, and that's why I'm announcing it, John and Christina Naya. You know John and Christina Naya? His uh, father unexpectedly passed away this morning. So just keep them in prayer. And if you know them uh, well enough, maybe give them a call later today or maybe Sunday or Monday. Call up with them. Encourage them. Uh, okay, beloved. Have you read through Philippians this last week? You know, it's the question I ask every week. I thought about skipping it this week, but then I thought, what if someone finally did it? And they're like, what? He didn't even give me the opportunity to raise my hand and show off a little bit. So, and I don't want to steal that from you. So... Did you read, any of you read through Philippians this last week? Raise them high, raise them high. Encourage your brothers and sisters. All right, so like I say, the goal now is to maybe get close to 100% participation on any given Sunday that all of you have read through Philippians the previous week, okay? I know a lot of you, I know most, many of you have done it at least once, if not more. I'm trying to get it to be a regular practice for you, all right? Okay? Let's read the text, and we'll jump on in, because we have a lot to cover, and I'd like to try to f- actually finish on time this week. So Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Remember, this is part two. Just remember that, so I won't cover everything uh, that was certainly that was covered last time. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you were here last time, I'll do a little bit of review. You'll remember um, I only covered verses 14, and welcome back, Stephen, Laurie, I just saw you there. Welcome back, you world travelers. Are you feeling okay? They got back from Spain recently. I won't even tell you how old they are, <laughs> because they blow me away all the time. They seriously do, how, much, how active they are and, how, and how, what great servants they are of the Lord. Anyway, welcome back. Uh, 14 and 15. Okay, so last time we covered 14 and 15, and I mentioned this word intertextuality, intertextuality, um, concerning this passage. Basically, Paul doesn't hear say, he doesn't quote, and thus it is written, and then quote another text, like from the Old Testament, which is uh, common for him to do. You'll you'll see that quite a bit, especially in Romans. He, He constantly is quoting, pulling, uh, either directly or in somewhat indirectly from Old Testament passages. But intertextuality is the idea that uh, th- there is 
other texts are influencing this text. Other scriptures are having a, a direct influence on this scripture, and it's showing up somehow. Uh, either it's using wording from another place of the scripture, or it's just... It, has echoes of things that we've read before. And that's what, we see, that's what we see here. And then the reason, why do you care? Why do you care? Because if, it, if Paul, when he's writing this, is thinking about some other text, then it's worth considering those other texts uh, when trying to figure out what he's getting at here when he writes to the Philippians. If he has that in mind, then it's probably influencing uh, what he's communicating to the church in Philippi. That's why we care. So, and that's why I mention it. Not just it's like a cool fact, oh, intertextuality. No, because it impacts, how we, it, it impacts how we might understand the text. And it makes us ask more questions. And it, makes, it causes me to then have to go to explore these other passages, which I've done, and, and then explain, tried to explain that to you. So, Verse 14 uh, reminds one, as you read verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, it reminds one of descriptions found in the Old Testament of the wilderness generation of Israelites who God had placed under the leadership of Moses. And if you've read your Old Testament, uh, you will know that they were a grumbling, disputing, argumentative bunch. And they continually complained and pushed back on the leadership that God had established over them, Moses and his helper Aaron, and, and fought with them. And it was just, and it, it didn't go well for them. Uh, if you don't know, this wilderness generation, it did not go well for them. And God was very displeased. It just, and beyond all that, if you remember this wilderness generation, God rescued them out of slavery, out of bondage. And they were crying at some point to scream, and they wanted to go back, and to Egypt and be back under that bondage. And it just seemed like it was never enough. Not satisfied, not trusting God, not trusting in what he had told them. Um, so that, that, you know, we take that into consideration as we now read. The church in Philippi is very different, but they are guilty uh, to some degree of some grumblings and disputings. Uh, otherwise, Paul wouldn't have brought it up. And then in verse 15, that verse, he says, Do all things without grumbling or spooning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and dis, uh, twisted generation. That absolutely appears to be influenced by Deuteronomy 32.5. And, and that's part of what we call the Song of Moses. And there, Moses is speaking of the wilderness generation. And he writes that they, that generation, are blemished. They are blemished. They are not without blemish. They are blemished. And he actually says they are a crooked and twisted generation. <laughs> they are. Uh, we also know that in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul, for sure, specifically, he spells it out, uh, writes about this, this wilderness generation to the church in Corinth, who was also a church... The church of Philippi is a good church. The church in Corinth was a very troubled church, but they had all kinds of issues going on. And he wrote to them, uh, he pointed out, do not grumble, he says in 1 Corinthians 10.10, do not grumble as some of them did, as some of them did. And he's talking about there in context this generation. And then he points out they were destroyed. And you can read about that destruction carried out by God uh, in Numbers 16. 3 through 41. 
And then he says, Paul says to the church in Corinth, you need to learn, uh, learn from what happened to them. God is not okay with this. Yeah, he pours out his grace, he's going to take care of you, and yet, and he shows himself in all kinds of glorious ways. It's like Chris was just saying, we miss it all, and instead grumble and complain. And specifically, Numbers opens up with them really trying to, uh, basically they're fighting with the leadership, and the leadership was installed by God. So in a sense, they're fighting with God himself. So, um, that all comes into play. We, and so people ask questions. Well, what, are, you know, what is the church of Philippi grumbling about? What are they arguing about? We don't know exactly, but as we consider the wilderness generation, well, they certainly were grumbling against God. Uh, things, were, you know, things were not going the way they wanted them to go, per se. Uh, they were arguing with the leadership. So it's possible. I, I would imagine that it was because they were, grum- they were grumbling about something, uh, they were arguing maybe with the leadership, maybe just arguing with one another. We certainly have a case of two ladies in the church, as I mentioned in chapter 4, that definitely have some type of dispute going on. Specifically, they're called out uh, among the church, and Paul wants that addressed, and he wants them to reconcile and be in harmony. And again, we have this whole um, continual theme, and uh, Paul speaking to the issue of their unity, and them being unified and united in the gospel, and and so certainly grumbling and arguing is um, not going to help that at all. In fact, it's going to make it almost impossible. So the imperative, the authoritative command, and that's what you have to keep track of and, and not lose sight of in, with everything else that we're going to look at today. That's how this passage begins, this section here. In all you're doing, church, this authoritative command is the only imperative that's in this section right here. And everything else is given in support of this imperative or this command. But this authoritative command is, is basically, I would say it like this, in all you're doing, church, in all of your doing, so this is to the church in Philippi, and by extension it can be to us as well, do all that you do without grumbling or arguing, without complaining or bickering, without murmuring or disputing. And remember, this is part of a larger unit in this section of the letter, and the unit, Paul has already addressed the issue of unity. He's calling upon the church to pursue unity and to walk in humility. And he just got through talking about adopting the same humble attitude of Jesus Christ. Because without humility, there really can be no unity. And if there is not unity, then the gospel will suffer, the advance of the gospel. The church's witness for Christ, especially in the midst of opposition, will um, diminish or stop. And so all of these things, Paul's calling them to these things for the glory of Christ, that they would continue to do what they've done for many years, advance him, continue to make him known, continue to be that glorious witness that God has called them to be to their neighbors there in Philippi. But they can't do that if they're not united and there's something going on, there's some things going on within that beautiful little local body that uh, are really seeds of disunity. If they're not put in check, if they're not purged out, they're going to be in trouble. They're going to be in trouble. And Paul doesn't want to see that uh, for, this, for this church that he planted and uh, that he has, has cared for for this last 10 years in one way or another. And they too have cared for him and, and partnered with him in his broader gospel ministry to other 
city. So this church is very close to him. And he desires to see them press on for the sake of Christ and the glory of Christ. But, and so we talked about those matters, unity, how important it is for the church and the things that get in the way of that. And certainly, grumbling and disputing is going to get in the way of a church's unity. Okay? Beyond that, like I told you last time, I, I think as we think about what happened to the wilderness generation, we should right away see then grumbling and disputing is no small thing to God. He killed people. He killed people. He took their lives. Not not because they robbed a liquor store, but because they grumbled against God, against one another, against their leadership. They were argumentative. So it's no small thing. And it's just like we've been in the book, Respectable Sins. It is, again, I want to say again, it's just one of those areas where because it's so common, it's so common for us to grumble and, and for others around us to grumble, right? So even if you're not a grumbler on a regular basis, you probably have grumblers around you. And as I said before, murmurs, complainers, as I said before, if you have children, you certainly have that, right? Even the discourse within our public sphere and, and the way people interact with one another, and, and especially in the realm of politics and our government, my goodness. I mean, we're soaking in it. It's no small thing, though. Treat it like, like God treats it. See it the way he sees it. It's vile. It's dangerous. It's wicked. It's evil. It needs to be repented of. It needs to be purged out of your life. And, and specifically, he's not even talking, he's not talking specifically or thinking about personal Christians in their individual lives, but he's thinking about the church, that local church, and the dangers of, of grumbling and disputings and arguing that the danger that is to that local fellowship and their ability to do the things that God has called them to do. It's no small thing, beloved. So then, uh, again, it's all review. He says, um, in verse 15, he begins to provide support for the command in 14. Put away, so here's, so here's the command in 14. All, in all your doings, church, in all your doings, and again, I told you last time, I think, I think I did, while you could apply it to your doings in your home, like, you know, okay, when I do the laundry, you know, I shouldn't complain. I should be thankful to God that I have laundry to do, okay? I think someone told us one time, like, I think it really hit us hard because we're like, we're like, there's no room in this refrigerator. That's some kind of stupid thing we might say, you know, like, I can't, get it, I can't get my thing in here. Like, are you serious? Just shows how messed up we are, man. We just, we have this tendency, we can have this tendency to see always like the negative or, or how, or something that's missing instead of seeing the glory of God and the blessing and the many blessings he has given us and trusting in him even when things are difficult instead of, and knowing that he's in charge and sovereign and, and that he even brings difficult things into your life for your good. And for his glory, and, and actually been them believing that instead of complaining about it. 
Anyway, uh, I got lost there. I don't know where I was going with that. Um, but yeah, oh, because it's in the church setting. I think, yeah, you could apply it to other settings, but it's in, that, in all your doings, church. In all your doings, uh, put away these things. Uh, purge them from your lives. Uh, do, it, do it all without grumbling, right? Without being argumentative, without all the bickering. Do what you're being called to do, church. And so that includes everything, your relationships with one another as we work with each other. It includes uh, what God has called us to do in proclaiming the gospel and making him known and living out the Christian life as a body, as a, as a unit. But make sure grumbling is not part of that. Okay, and then from 14 on, 15 to the end, it's really all in support of, okay, and here's why. I didn't just say not do this, but here's why. And it elevates the seriousness of verse 14 uh, as we look at it. So he says that you may be blameless. Blameless, uh, having lies free from anything blameworthy. That you may be innocent. I told you that a pure, I think, is a better translation, or it's the one I would choose anyway, instead of innocent, because the word was used of undiluted wine or unalloyed metal. It can mean innocent, but it can also mean pure. So the idea is so that you would be devoid of, of matters foreign or improper. In other words, that, that shouldn't be a part of the child of God's practice. Grumbling. It doesn't belong. Okay? Uh, he gives another description so that you may be children of God without blemish. It's another description. It's, just, it's really the same with getting, out, getting at blameless and pure, that you may be children of God without blemish, without blemish, without defect. And then he says, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, as I said, this is the same wording used to describe the rebellious and unbelieving wilderness generation of Moses' day. But it's applied here not to the church. He wasn't saying they were crooked and twisted. They were not. But rather, it's applied to the whole unbelieving world in, in whose midst the Christians in Philippi lived. In other words, you've been called out of that crooked and twisted generation and made new, and you are to live differently. Unlike the, the wilderness generation that they themselves were crooked and twisted, you have been called out, and you have been set free in Christ, and you have been made a new man and given a new heart and God's spirit that you might live altogether differently in the crooked and twisted generation that now you live in. Okay? So again, just a, a lot of contrast going on. So bottom line, beloved, the, the grumbling or arguing, it, it, it's, not, it's definitely not okay. It's not okay. It, it was and it is a blemish a fault, a stain that they and we are to, if we're guilty of it, are to rid ourselves of. As I said, God severely punished the wilderness generation for it. He does not take it lightly. And as his children, then we, who I would hope want to please our Father and delight him and live as what we are, children of God, that we too would not take it lightly, that we would take it seriously, we would not be okay with that. Uh, this sinful behavior would and will destroy unity, and it, would, and it would and it will ruin their and our ability to reach the world around us for Christ. It's no small matter, all right? So now let's pick it up. That was all review. <clears throat> you ready? 
all right. So all, a lot of this stuff's kind of heady. Um, but I'm, gonna try to, I'm not going to try to dive too deep where we start to kind of drown, okay? But it can get real heady. Uh, but here we go. So do all things without grumbling or disputing. And now in verse 15, we covered part of that already. We're going to uh, continue, though. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And then this last uh, phrase, we didn't cover this last time. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Lights. The word uh, translated lights in the ESV appears in the New Testament only twice, here and in Revelation 21.11. As a one commentator point, pointed out, it signified any, any light body, the word, or luminary. Luminary. A definition of luminary is a body that gives light, especially one of the celestial bodies, like a, a star or a moon. All right? And uh, the word came to be even used... Uh, of navigation beacons. Accordingly, the commentator says, the, the word has been understood generically then to denote lights. And then world here would likely refer to the world of mankind that lies in darkness. You shine as lights in the world or in the world of mankind that lies in darkness. There's a contrast. He points out, though, that the Greek word is used, though, more specifically in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint to denote the shining heavenly bodies such as stars. And you'll see that in that Greek translation, for instance, in Genesis 1, 14 and 16. He goes on to say, accordingly, other translations of the Bible then, taking that into consideration... Render the Greek word here by the specific term star. Star. So instead of the general word lights, they use the word star. A luminary. A celestial body. The Greek word for world is then, in that case, taken as referring to the physical world. That is the universe or sky. So in the ESV... Both translations are fine, but in the end, I just wanted to point that out because you might wonder, because in NIV uh, 84, at least, was a very, it's a good translation, and it was very common, but in the NIV 84, you'll see it says here, among whom you shine as stars in the universe. But that's a legitimate, that is a legitimate translation. Um, the ESV goes with the more general understanding of the word, among whom you shine as lights in the world, okay, in the world of Mankind who are in darkness. So then, here's what he's saying. Let's put it together. Children of God without blemish, which is what we are called to be. Children of God without blemish, without defect. That's what we're called to be. That's what we're empowered to be in Christ. Are, according to Paul, and then now he uses metaphorical language, like shining stars in the dark sky like lights to the people around us who lie in darkness. Spiritual darkness, moral darkness, even intellectual darkness. I think the point, um, at, at minimum, the point is our lives should be a stark contrast <laughs> to the darkness all around us. I mean, that's, if you think, and that's why I brought up the whole stars thing. If you look into the night sky, not so much here, 
in Southern California, you can kind of see it, but if you get outside of the city and maybe go to Arizona or a different place, or certainly in Idaho, I've seen it there, it's amazing, and you look into the sky and, it's, and the moon's not shining maybe that night, but even in that case, the moon, you, it's a great, significant contrast, the dark against the shining bright stars, or moon, if you will, if it was a nice full moon, right? Contrast, it should stand out. It doesn't blend in. We who have been made children of light are to, to look different <laughs> by nature of who we are now in Christ. He is the light. We have the light. We are to be that light. And in a dark world, that means it should look very different. It shouldn't look like, hey, is that a, oh, that's not a star. You know, like, no, that's, I don't know what I was thinking. Speck in my eye, one of those wandering specks. No, it's bright. It reminds me of that song. This little light of mine. <laughs> I'm gonna... Oh, you know it too. Yeah, that's a cute song. Um, I don't, no sarcasm. It's a cute, I, I meant that. It's a cute song. It's a cute song, but I wonder if we've considered, you know, what that means. It's not holding your, fl- your, uh, your phone up at a concert. We, I, I almost said lighter because that's what we used to do in our day. <laughs> but no one has lighters anymore. It's not like that. Well, they do, but whatever. All right, skip that. Throw that out. Cut that from the pointless. Uh, my mind wanders sometimes. Let it shine, right? That is, uh, let the glory of Christ, let God's character come through in full. Let it shine. I mean, it, it speaks of what we look like, you know, not just, it, it means I look like my Father who is light. I walk like him. I talk like him. I, I express my character in my doings and in my beings. One writer says, Amid the darkness, the children of God should stand out as stars at midnight. Believers are the possessors of Christ, the light of the world, John eight twelve, And so are now light givers to the world, Matthew five fourteen. The challenge is to let the light shine out unhindered. You know, not lights that need to be replaced, not lights that look like they're dying. I think that star's dying. Again, it's barely, it's dim. You can barely see it. Bright lights, shining stars. We're told in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9, for at one time, speaking to Christians, You were darkness at one time before Christ rescued you, before he saved you. But now, because of that salvation, you are light in the Lord. That is what you are. Now, do what you are. Walk as children of light. And he says here, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good. 
and right and true. And that certainly doesn't include grumbling and disputing and bickering. That is not good, right, or true. Commenting on Ephesians 5.8, one commentator said this, Believers are no longer part of the darkness. Glory be to God. By position. We are no longer part of the darkness in which we used to live. We are light in the Lord. He goes on to say, they have been rescued out of darkness. Now being in the Lord, who is the light, they too are lights. And then he says this, the behavior of saints, it's us that are saved, it's another word for us, a biblical word, a good one, the behavior of saints should correspond with their position. Since they are children of light, they are to live accordingly. We are to be what we are, (laughs) practically speaking. We are to manifest that light. And Ephesians 5.9 explains that the fruit of the light, it's goodness, it's righteousness, and it's truth. That all reflects God's character in a believer's life. So what Paul is calling the church to calling us to by extension. And then now back to the text 14 and 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life. All right, so it seems like every phrase in this section is a little bit difficult to get at. But again, trying to work through all that. Verse 16, as it is, is explained or understood in a couple of different ways by Bible scholars. One Bible translation makes it a new sentence. I would not do this, but it, it does. And who am I, though, you know? But I, I, one, I, one, I mean, these guys are Greek scholars, and so, but some, and they have uh, different ways of, there are different ways that you can understand a passage sometimes, but there is only one right meaning, so we're all in search of that, all right? There's not like multiple okay meanings. We're all in search of what we, what we believe it to be Paul is saying and, or what the text is communicating. But when you're trying to translate out of the Greek, it can get a little complicated. And so you, these different Bible translations reflect that uh, complexity. But one Bible translation makes it a new sentence and treats it like another command <laughs> and links it to the remainder of verse 16. So it's the, it's, uh, the, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. In verse 16, they, they start hold, capital, H, hold firmly to the message of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. I don't see it that way. Other scholars see it as being connected with the previous phrase that I just read to you, we just talked about, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it is thought to explain how the readers will shine as lights in the world. How? By holding fast to the word of life. Uh, Finally, some think it links back to the children of God without blemish. How will they do that? How will, how will we be children of God without blemish? Uh, by holding fast to the word of life. That's how I understand it. And all of those ways are possible, but I, I would suggest this last way. How, uh, how can we be what Paul is saying um, that should be our pursuit, should be our longing, uh, should be our goal to be children of God without blemish, without defect, purging these things out of our lives that... Uh, that need to be purged out of our lives, including the matters of grumbling and disputing and being argumentative and bickering and complaining. 
it will be by holding fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question, and I have answered that question because the phrase in a previous sermon, because the phrase is found, the exact phrase is also found in 1 John 1 and 2. 1 John 1, 1, John 1, 1 and 2, all right? So there we read this when I went through 1 John with you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the Apostle John writing this and uh, the we referring to other apostles along with him. That which we was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. There's the phrase, word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What do you think the word of life is? All right, so we're good. Life there is certainly speaking of Jesus. Um, and I explained when I went through First John that that deals with the word life. What about the word word there? Uh, you could understand that here is message. So it is the message of or concerning Christ and the true life that is found in him and him alone. All right, so the word of life. It's the message concerning Christ and the life that is found in in him, for he is life, okay? The phrase really is synonymous with the gospel that Paul preached. You could say it that way. It's synonymous with the gospel. And remember, I told you the gospel is, it's good to clarify the gospel of Christ, but normally we shorten it to just say gospel because we know what we're talking about, but gospel is good news. It's the good news or the proclamation of Christ, including everything, His, his life, his death, his birth, his life, his death, uh, all that was prophesied about him, all that's to come, his resurrection, his glory, his kingdom, all of it. It's that message. And in that message, we hear of, we learn of Christ, who is life. And by that message, we receive life. We proclaim life, real life, union with God for sinners. Okay? So how, how might we be uh, blameless children of God or children without uh, spot or stain how might we how might we be able to pursue that and achieve that it'll be hold, by holding fast to the gospel holding fast to the gospel in other words that's how you fulfill the task by by remembering the gospel by believing the gospel by not letting the gospel depart from you in any way from your mind from your heart holding it fast locking it in uh, not letting it, locking in the true gospel, not letting it be distorted in any way. Uh, it is in the, in the gospel, in this message of life, that we have the life or can have the life that God would have us to have, which is a life that is transformed and being conformed to the image of Christ and manifesting Christ's likeness and the character of God. So, Philippians 2, again, working through it, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world by holding fast. I could, you, could, you could translate by holding fast to the word of life so that, all right, next clause, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Just quickly notice uh, Paul's focus, 
right? He is, he's like a laser, man. He's just fixed on Christ and, and fixed on that day, on the coming of Christ and being before Christ. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but he, his eternal perspective, it's always right there, and it's always popping up in the text. And I, and I have to say, it is, what, it is in part what makes him who he is and causes him to do what he does and drives him like it does. He, he does not, he's not locked in um, and, and drowning in the here and now. He, he's living in the here and now. He's not, he's not stepped away from it. He's actively involved, but he's, he's doing it and achieving what he's achieving or achieve what he achieved because he's fixed on that hope and on the things that are to come. Just uh, a thought for you this morning. I understand so that, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I understand so that to include everything Paul has said in verses 15 and 16. Okay, not just holding fast to the word of life. I want you to hold fast to the word of life so that, no, it's, it's everything. It's the whole section. Uh, so one writer says, it's not simply the Philippians holding fast to the word of life that provides the ground of Paul's glorying before the judgment seat of Christ. I'll come back to that. Rather, both their being blameless and pure and their living as God's holy children in the midst of a corrupt and sinful world while they hold fast the word of life are in view. It's all in view. It's all in view. You do that so that, okay, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Okay, so what is in the day of Christ? Well, in the context, it indicates, according to the context it indi- here, it indicates that Paul is thinking here uh, of the judgment seat of Christ based on what he's talking about. Uh, and It's an aspect of the future day of Christ or the time when Christ returns for his church and, we'll, and when believers, that means you if you're a believer, will have your works inspected and rewarded, those that are deserving of reward, the day of Christ. Paul lived in light of that. He lived in light of that. Um, it's mentioned in specifically that phrase, judgment seat of Christ. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Here in the NIV translation, it says, For we, speaking to the church, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Let me point out, this is not, uh, well, let me just read what one uh, source said concerning the judgment seat of Christ, maybe to clear up, if you have confusion, confusion concerning this, what should be a glorious event the church okay it should be that's what paul hopes it to be wants it to be uh for the church and and for every christian but one author says the judgment seat of christ does not determine salvation that's not what it's for uh that was determined by christ's sacrifice on um on our behalf and our faith in him all of our sins are forgiven and we will never be condemned for them that's from the scriptures We should not look at the judgment seat of Christ then as God judging our sins, but rather as God rewarding us for our lives. Yet, as the Bible says, we will have to give an account of ourselves. Part of this is surely answering for the sins we committed. In other words, I mean, sin can be, why didn't you do this? You know, by sin of omission or commission. It's not just a matter of... um, in other words, we sin when we don't fulfill the mandate for the church and for our individual lives. 
Uh, We sin when we disrupt the unity of a church. Or we don't seek to preserve the unity of the church. Both ways. So we'll have to to give an account for these things. Uh, We will be forgiven in Christ. We will not be condemned, but it, it interfered then with the reward that should have been ours that Christ wanted to, uh, to be ours. He says, however, um, we may answer for our sins, but that is not going to be the primary focus on the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers are rewarded based on how faithfully they serve Christ. Some of the things we might be judged on are how well we obeyed the Great Commission. What was that? What is that? Yeah, all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. As you go, make disciples of all nations. Uh, or how victorious we were over sin. It is sin not to be victorious over sin. (laughs) Then it means you're sinning. And how well we controlled our tongues, as an example. These are examples. The Bible speaks of believers receiving crowns for different things based on how faithfully they serve Christ. So, bottom line, beloved, every Christian will give an account of their lives to Christ. Did you know that? I hope you do, and I hope you think about it. Often. Often. What did they do with the life Christ gave them? That's the idea. What did you do with it? Were you faithful stewards? Were you faithful stewards with what God has given you and and the place that he has placed you in? Were you faithful in that, in those things? Did you do what God has called you to do? Did you strive for those things? Look, Christ wants to pour out rewards on us. And if I love Christ, I should love what he loves. He, in fact, he will love to pour out rewards on us because the rewards will mean we served him well. So it's not a matter of like, that's greedy. No, it's not. It's righteous to pursue the rewards because they bring honor and glory to our king here now and in the pursuit of them and on that day. And ultimately, we can't pursue any of these things or accomplish any of them apart from the power of Christ and his work in our life. So ultimately, all the praise goes to him. It's a way of just showing Christ how awesome he is as, we're, as our rewards are stacked high for the life that we lived in his power because of him, in obedience to him and in great love of him. It honors him, all of it. So Paul's fixed on these things. And he says, uh, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. If you don't like the word proud, there's nothing wrong with it. There is, a, there is sinful pride and then there's a, a proud that's not sinful. Um, you can be proud in your kids, you know, like good accomplishments, right? That's not sinful. There is a sinful pride, but... The NASB, though, translates it, maybe this is better for you, so that in the day of Christ I I will have reason to glory. I like that. Um, The NET, you may not like this one either, but it's also good, so that on the day of Christ I will have reason to boast. And we immediately think of boasting as bad, but just remember, remember Paul. As one writer points out, boasting has nothing to do with Paul or what Paul has done, but with what Christ has wrought through him. It's gonna be a boast in Christ, a boast in the cross. I, I, wanna, I want that opportunity to be a great boasting. This is why I tell you these things and, and command you, purge these things from your life. Purge these things from your church. 
that my boast might be big on that day. Because if those things aren't purged out, it's going to diminish the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of this church that, that Paul has invested himself into and it is in part, it is his stewardship and, and is responsible, has been responsible for as he has led them as an apostle of Christ and instructed them. As I said, so in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Run in vain. Again, he's using imagery here, right? What, what would it look like if you ran in vain? Uh, I mean, no, and so the idea would be, you don't just, it's not just running for nothing, but it's run and not completing the race. So, or not achieving the goal. Let's say that. Running in vain. Not making it to the finish line. So the idea is that, that the goal of his running or efforts for the Philippians would be achieved, all of his running, all of his strenuous efforts uh, would bring forth what he hopes them to bring forth and what they should bring forth in this little church here in Philippi. Uh, labor, labor in vain. The word is toil. It's hard work, all my hard work. His hope is that his hard work among the Philippians would be completely and entirely fruitful. Right? That's his hope. Uh, but... In order for, for those kind of things to happen, they need to do these things or not let these things uh, find their way into their, their local body or into their personal lives and, and, take, and, and maybe t- begin to take away the fruitfulness of that church and its ability to advance the name of Christ and to make Christ known well. One writer says, by, by their heeding these words that Paul has given them, they will have... Paul will have plenty of cause for boasting when they stand together before Christ at the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Indeed, they will be primary evidence that the church, they will be primary evidence that he had neither run in vain nor labored in vain. They will be his opportunity for boasting if they will heed these words, which is his great hope. It's just his expectation as well. All right, let me close out this. Uh... So you can see, there's so, I, I guess with every phrase that I'm, I'm taking time to explain to you and, and, try to, and try to make clear, and I'm doing my best, um, it adds to the weightiness of do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you see that? I hope you see that. It adds to the weightiness. This is all that's involved. It's not a small thing. A sin never is. As we've been going through the book, Respectable Sins, it's, none of it is a small thing. But, but certainly I could see, and certainly it has been the history of the people of God to be a grumbling people. <laughs> so Paul doesn't want to see that. Don't make the same mistake they made, nor do I expect you will, but don't do it. And I see it cropping up, Certainly, I've heard reports of it. Purge it out. And then he says in 17, and this one's really complex, but don't worry. I'm not going there. I'm going to say it's so complex, I have read probably 15 pages. I'm not going to do that to you, okay? But just know that there are some uh, different views, 
because we don't, it's hard to lock this one down. It's really hard. Paul loves to use metaphorical language. And often we can see where he's using it in other places, and so we can get an idea, but this one's hard. We can't seem to get enough comparisons to know exactly. So people, people take educated and biblically influenced guesses, uh, and that's what I'm going to do, all right? But you might read somewhere else in your study something else, and I might change my mind later on, but here, what, here it is, okay? In further study, not just whimsically, like, oh, I just changed my mind. No, I, further study might cause me to change my mind here, but again, it's really now he's capping out. So this was a unit, right? It started in 127. Remember I told you that? And it goes all the way down to 218. It's a unit together. You can mark it off in your letter in Philippians as you're reading it. This is a section of the letter. Paul's addressing all this stuff goes together, okay? Um, this is a cap now, a close to the section. And he says, but I, I think it flows right out of what he just got through talking about. I think it's connected to the immediate context as well as the section at in large. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So let me give you another translation. It's the NET, which I prefer in this case. I prefer, I'll I'll show you why. The NET translates it this way. But even if I am being poured out, you might notice they're a little bit different tense. It feels like a different tense. I think it is. It's in the, but even if I'm being poured out, if I'm in the process of being poured out, the other way, how the ESV translates it, it, it's, it sounds like, even if I am to be poured out, it sounds like the possibility of a future event. But the tense supports, he's talking about what's happening right now. So, so, and it could be, you could, you could translate it either way, but... Um, even if I am to be poured out, this future possibility, some have thought, and there's a number of commentators that do, that he's looking forward right now, and because of the imagery, he's thinking maybe of his death, that maybe, he, remember he's in prison, right? And he's going to stand before the tribunal and the Roman tribunal, and they could execute him uh, for his gospel witness, uh, for his stirring up trouble, <laughs> all right? Um. I don't think he's thinking of his death. Uh, so that, you have to make that decision first. I don't think that's the case. So I, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice together with all of you. In the same way, you also should be glad and rejoice together with me. All right, here it is. Okay, The imagery, uh, like a drink offering. What? What, right? To our ears, probably strange unless we're a rooted well in the Old Testament, then it wouldn't be so strange. Um, But for them, whether they were Jew or Gentile, they would get it. They would get it. Uh, One author points out, it was a ritual familiar to many ancient people, not so much the moderns. (laughs) Uh, We're not into doing these kind of sacrifices anymore, so both Jew and Gentile. So after placing the, he says, after placing the animal sacrifice on the altar, the priest would take wine and pour it either on the burning sacrifice or on the ground in front of the altar. And this would happen both in Jewish context and in pagan context, in their sacrifices, both. So they were familiar with the drink offering. It was part of, it was part of the sacrifice and added to this sacrificial animal or of sorts that was there. And uh, one author says, the act symbolized the rising of the sacrifice into the nostrils of the deity to whom it was being offered. You know, it would smoke up and... 
anyway, imagery and, and all symbolic and, so, and such, I, I think it is meant, this is what I think, I think it is meant to picture the, the sacrificial pouring out of Paul's life in relation to and in the interest of the Philippians' faith and their sacrificial service to God, which is expressed here as poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith as a drink offering. But even if I am as a drink offering being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I think that means that the apostle is thinking of the various Christian ministries performed as a spiritual sacrifice to God and springing forth from their faith for the Philippians. So it's their sacrificial offer to God, their service unto God, that, that sacrificial life, their, their living sacrifice to God, uh, springing forth from their faith. Uh, Paul's sacrifice on their behalf and uh, in their interest in relation to their sacrifice uh, so poured out for them. I think that's, that's the imagery, I, I think. I think that's why Paul uses, he just does, he does. He uses these metaphors. They, he definitely knew what he was talking about. I'm going to imagine the Philippians got it. We're, we have trouble, but I think that's it. Um, he's just using the imagery. I'm added to, I'm being poured out. And even if I am, even if I am, and that is what was happening, I would say it was more of a, a statement of what is true. Even if I'm being poured out and, and, and poured out, think of a life that's just poured out for the sake of others, and, for, and ultimately for their service unto God. So my sacrifice unto God being poured out for their service and sacrifice unto God. I think it's that. And he says, I am glad and rejoice together with you all. And, and clearly his sacrifice, his life being poured out, has right now got him to a place of imprisonment where he awaits potentially to be executed. And it is a life that has not at all been easy. At all been easy. It's been loaded down with pains and trials and troubles. Great sacrifice. And in fact, this beautiful church that has partnered with him in the ministry of the gospel and, and as well has, has served God well, they too have sacrificed in their service unto God, and they too, even in this unit, you'll see are suffering, just as they see Paul suffering. They too are suffering. They too are experiencing persecution from those around them there in the city of Philippi who are beholden to Lord Caesar and look not well on anyone who would say there is only one Lord and his name is Jesus and so he says, in light of that, I, I've given myself. I am giving myself away for your sake and, and, and for your sake. I see your great sacrifice unto God as well. And you know what? I am glad. And I rejoice together with you all in what God is doing and has been doing through you. So one author says, Paul, what's that all about? Paul was not embittered but was rejoicing. He was rejoicing. Remember I said one of the main themes of this letter is joy or, or rejoicing. We see it over and over again. Rejoicing in his present labors and sufferings. He was, he, the writer says he was, not only, he was willing not only to endure his present sufferings, but also to lay down his life 
And the prospect of being with Christ and of having his ministry among the Philippians seen as successful filled him with joy. Do this so that when we get there, I have much to boast in, that my labor was not in vain, that I did not run in vain or toil in vain. Yes, I rejoice. Even at the great cost, I rejoice. I am glad. Furthermore, he says he rejoiced not only for his own sake, but jointly with the Philippians as he contemplated his relation to their faith. He was its planter. He planted that church. He was its nourisher. He's invested his life, and it's come at a great price. And he is not grumbling. And in the same way, he says, you should also be glad and rejoice together with me and so the author says, likewise, the Philippians should display the same attitude as Paul. They must not wring their hands nor bewail their own trials. But instead, they should rejoice. They should be glad in the opportunity that they have had to be a sacrifice, to serve God. Even at great cost, even through the struggle, and the one, even in the one that they're currently facing. And not to murmur and not to complain. So I see it like this. Don't grumble, church. Be glad. Don't bicker, church. Rejoice. Rejoice. Do what I do. I'm rejoicing. That's what Paul's saying. I'm rejoicing. Well, that's it. Here's the bottom line. Don't forget this. And I said, don't forget this. Through all of that, all of that was to elevate the imperative in verse 14 to the level it should be, hopefully, in your heart and in your mind, the importance of it. But don't forget the imperative. In all you're doing, church, be careful to do, that all, to do all that you do without grumbling or arguing, without complaining or bickering, without murmuring or disputing for the good of the church, for the advancement of Christ, for the glory of God. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word and ask your blessing upon it and upon uh, your dependent people. We need you now. We'll need you tomorrow. We will always need you. We depend on you, and we cry out to you, help us. Father, we, Father, we, we desire, and I speak now on behalf of this beautiful body, we desire to be that church that, that excels, that is honoring you as we should, that is working hard to be a, a people of God without defect. And, and when we see those things, those stains pop up on us, Father, may we not be content. May we be quick to wash them away, to put them away, put on clean clothes, and to live as shining lights in this world for the glory of our great Christ for the fame of his name and for the great reward that awaits those who have been faithful stewards. In Jesus' name, amen.